0: Welcome to another edition of Global Investment Leaders. Welcome all to another edition of Global Investment Leaders. I am Chaz Burkhart, the CEO of Rosemont, and I'm very pleased to be joined today by my friend Rick Huff, the CEO of Silvercrest Asset Management, whom I've known his whole career at Silvercrest. Uh, So this is a pleasure. Rick, thanks for joining the podcast. My pleasure. Good morning. Going back to the beginning and our original conversations with Moffat Cochran, and Marty Jaffe, who were the co-founders of Silvercrest, as some will recall, DLJ was acquired by Credit Suisse. And after some period of time, Moffat and Marty had decided that they did not want to continue to be part of that business, and they wanted to start Silvercrest. We began brainstorming with them. And we actually began funding the business of the spring of 2001. The business was not officially launched until the spring of 2002. Is that correct, Rick?
1: That's right. It started April 1st, 2002.
0: So from that point, off we went. And we actually got out of the gate pretty well, both in terms of the quality and number of employees who followed Marty and Moffitt, and in terms of a number of the clients who had had long relationships with them that were able to come to Silvercrest after observing any non-solicit agreements. I think what's
1: important about that, Chaz, too, is that the firm launched, thanks in part with the the capital that uh, your firm provided, by building a really robust infrastructure with a segregation of duties, technology, operations, investment teams, relationship managers, COO, CFO, and of course, Moffat Cochran, whom you just mentioned, serving as CEO. It was a robust infrastructure from day one instead of growing
0: into it. It's a really good point because it's something that Rosemont has focused on its entire investing life, which is functional excellence. And most startups, as you point out, don't have it initially. They grow into it. And in this case, we knew it was a business that was ready for prime time right away. And fortunately, that's kind of the way it turned out. Now, Rick, you joined after a, I think, a fairly accomplished career in the nonprofit world. After joining in 2003, Rick, I believe you became a partner and joined the executive committee in 2006. You succeeded Marty Jaffe as COO in 2010. You became president in 2012, and you became CEO in 2013 after Moffitt unfortunately died of cancer.
1: That's right. And just a few months after uh, we took this company
0: public. The timing of which was um, ironic, but it was something that Moffat always wanted. And so it was great that at least he got to see it in his lifetime. But let's kind of start, if we could, Rick, with Silvercrest today, because when we backed it, obviously it had great aspirations and was a wealth management business. It it had uh, designs on the institutional business, but really started out more as a wealth management business. Uh, It had an interesting and varied client base. And as we've pointed out, it had kind of great functional support for those clients, both investment, technology, relationship management, et cetera. But after growing to roughly 8 billion in the first five years, of which we directly or indirectly introduced about $2 billion of that first eight. The business went on to kind of significant growth, both organically and inorganically. So perhaps you could give us a sense of where Silvercrest is today and a few metrics. Sure.
1: Uh, I think one very interesting thing that you just touched on was that when the firm was launched with all of these capabilities and intellectual capital infrastructure Thanks to the capital you brought to the table. And of course, the help you just mentioned by uh, being responsible for at least a couple billion in those first few years, there was a significant part of the business plan that failed, which was that no institutional assets came over th- with the investment team after Silvercrest launched, launch. Despite their long history together, the, the fact there was no disruption in the team, that side of the business actually didn't take off and mature until post financial crisis. Interestingly, so to get back to statistics, as of the end of last year, we were actually at thirty-one point two billion. Uh, so we were at that eight billion after five years, and probably fifteen after ten. And and here uh, we we doubled it again for our twentieth anniversary, ending last year. Of course, with the market sell-off, we're now at twenty-eight point seven billion. That'll come back. That uh, we've had awfully constructive markets for for a very long time. But we're one hundred and fifty people strong. We're uh, in offices in Boston, New York, which is our headquarters, Richmond, Virginia, and uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, as well as San Diego at, at, at this point in time. The business is 70% wealth. And as I mentioned, is now has a, a robust institutional business. It's now 30% institutional, uh, doing direct equity mandates and either growth or value over that time. Our average client is extremely high net worth. Our average client is 36 million, uh, which is extremely high for certainly uh, the high net worth business, but very high as an average for a firm as mature and large uh, as we are. I would expect that to go down. And then finally, our top 50 clients average $350 million now, which is certainly a far cry than when we we started.
0: Well, you actually had some very large clients, some large foreign clients, as I recall, when in the early days of the firm correct but, and that's
1: expanded we we now have clients in Switzerland, Germany, the UK, Poland, the Netherlands, Asia as well as uh, South America and 46 states you know anyone in North yeah. Dakota let me know chat
0: <laughs> so let's go back to the investment engine right off the bat Moffitt and Marty uh, put in place what was largely a, a closed model equity investment shop led by Roger Vocal but quickly became a semi-open architecture platform offering outside complementary investment strategies to those which Silvercrest had internally. Talk a little bit about either the conflicts or the pressures or just the notion of having both internal and external capabilities throughout this whole time.
1: Sure. Well, as a firm that had clients really embedded uh, previously at DLJ with specific in-house investment teams, it really had to be in the investment business to credibly migrate portfolios and serve those clients well who wanted to own individual securities. Uh, So it was kind of an absolute requirement for the business uh, when it started. However, Marty and Moffitt and the partners here saw the fact that in order to be a conflict free model, we really had to work with managers who may even compete with the Crest's internal capabilities. That would keep us sharp, by the way. The competitive environment's a good one. This is an entrepreneurial firm. We welcomed that. Uh, but secondly, there already was a very slight and growing open architecture movement uh, among RIAs, those who didn't have any of their own proprietary investment capabilities. And Marty and Moffitt correctly, understood that to compete against that model, you had to show that you were not only conflict-free, but had a a wide variety of investment choices to compete with those those outsiders. I coined a term in 2004, after I joined Silvercrest, that referred to our hybrid model as rational architecture. Chaz, I'm sorry to say that term (laughs) never took off. And occasionally, I still try to get it in there. But Uh, The idea was that we were going to be able to really customize bespoke portfolios on behalf of our clients, be a lot more active with with tax and and losses at the end of the year, harder to do when you're working with outside managers and funds, um, and at the same time, create a conflict-free model. And the reason we're conflict-free in large part is because we do not charge for our internal capabilities. The decision was made 20 years ago. That if you became a wealth management client of Silvercrest, you got our investment capabilities as part of that, if you wanted it. If not, we're happy to outsource it. So we really had no conflict. And in fact, our margins are a bit lower when we manage the money internally, because I have to pay our internal teams with the same dollars I'm receiving.
0: Now, it's a good distinction and important color, because it wouldn't be obvious necessarily. Look, I think on the investment side, you've done a credible job for a long time, but I think what might be less known is your capability and resource on the wealth management side. So, Rick, give me a sense of how you think about and divide your resources between the wealth and institutional businesses.
1: So, Chaz, in building the business, one important thing to us was that we didn't end up in separate lines of businesses that could be in competition uh, with each other or create conflicts within the firm. So strategically, everything we've done hangs together and, and, and works in a complementary fashion with the wealth business. So even though we have institutional quality equity capabilities, whether that's in value equities, which we started with or, or growth today, thanks to an acquisition we did three years ago, it's this exact same thing, product being used for institutions as it is for the wealth side. In addition, We have, of course, investment policy, asset allocation, macroeconomic work, risk management. Those capabilities are all in service to the wealth management group. So fundamentally, as an asset management firm, the weight of the firm is all in support of the wealth business, even if the intellectual capital in different parts of the firm, family office services, the investment policy group I mentioned, equity teams are doing all that work for wealth as well. So I really want a strategy where it's supporting different parts of the business and the revenue is really supporting uh, really good intellectual capital in order to serve our wealth management clients.
0: Yeah, I think it's an important distinction because as you know, wealth management and institutional investing capabilities and or firm business lines do not always make good bedfellows. That's right. That's right. There are very few firms I'd have to think back to a place like Scudder Stevens and Clark or T. row Price or Capital Group as evidence of some of the kind of larger multi-generation successes in this. But When you get down to uh, employee-owned boutiques or firms that are, let's call it, you know, sub 50 billion that are doing both credibly, it's a very small list. It's
1: very small and, and, and some
0: of those great institutions
1: in some ways are, are modeled. When I think about some of the hardest things we do in our business for any firm, it's to attract and retain, uh, really good people in intellectual capital. And so what our structure has allowed us to do is to create revenue streams to support those specific groups. It's their own revenue, but it's completely complementary to the other parts of the business. So the equity teams that are all intact have their own institutional revenue, but doing the exact same things they do for the wealth management clients. On the back of the investment policy and strategy group, we built an OCIO initiative that's entirely third-party open architecture. But again, it's their revenue stream and supports a really high-talent team that works to the advantage of, uh, of the high net worth audience and is also proof of thesis of what we're trying to deliver, which is institutional quality intellectual capital to our clients and actually have it come to bear on their accounts.
0: appreciate that. Well, look, when we started uh, Silvercrest 20 years ago, I think that there was a clear need and a pretty important differentiable set of characteristics that the firm brought to the table at the time. Today, as you well know, the business is overrun with competitors of every size and type and ownership and business model. What makes Silvercrest stand out today? What are you focused on as kind of the defining and differentiable characteristics of the firm?
1: So it goes back, Chaz, to delivering institutional quality intellectual capital to our clients, actually having it come to bear with that proof of thesis that we have a real institutional business. And of course, we're coupling it with great technology and conflict-free model and client service. But really hang our hat on being in the markets every day, having a view on securities and bringing value added services through financial uh, family office services like tax and accounting work, estate planning, comprehensive balance sheet reporting, bill paying, etc. The big difference that's occurred in our value proposition is that when we started You could say it's a conflict-free model using best-of-breed managers or great capabilities with a high level of customer service. What has changed, given the competition you just mentioned, is everyone says that and can say that now. That just means you hung a shingle. There is no differentiator. So as we grew the institutional business, as we grew the intellectual capital here and realized what we were delivering and doing for our clients We pivoted more to to focusing on, on that intellectual capital, that institutional quality of what we're doing, which, as you just pointed out, very few firms have that hybrid model and can do it credibly
0: today. Well, let's move on to your work as a leader. And it's funny, when I reflected a little bit on how I would think about your leadership principles and your style, the first thing I wanted to talk to was what you do every day. Because as you know, Rick, the CEO function of a wealth or even institutional investment firm is actually incredibly varied. You could drive a truck through the actual ways CEOs in our business spend their day. Give the listener a sense of how you spend a typical day or how you divide up your time, however you think about it. And then let's, let's move on to your guiding points as a leader of the company.
1: Okay. That's a very perceptive question. Um, And in fact, this goes back to the roots of the firm we talked about earlier in the podcast, where there was segregation of duties and a real uh, sophisticated, built-out infrastructure. Under, Under that scenario, the CEO, at least at this firm, was someone who was really responsible for executing the strategy of the business, not getting involved, as you see with many other CEOs in this business, in picking stocks or doing the investments or asset allocation work or uh, being the absolute marketer in, in chief. Those are all models you see, someone who has clients themselves, who's managing um, yes. you know, wealthy clients. At this firm, historically, the CEO was responsible for overseeing the overall operations of the firm and the strategic initiatives of the firm on behalf of the people who are here. Uh, and so that's really what I inherited. It was a very difficult transition, of course, to get into the shoes of a founder, find your own means of leading. I'm quite different than than our founder, who was a visionary for this business, Uh, and to get used to doing things differently, especially since I was a COO, which was very focused on the nuts and bolts of the business and, and, and running it. I had to shift to really thinking much more long term about the strategy of the firm and the personnel to make that strategy come to life and work instead of actually doing it. The second phase of my CEO role is allocation of capital. As this firm has matured and gotten larger and you can do more initiatives and you have the revenue streams that are occurring, you have to figure out how to invest that capital profitably for growth. It's always a role of a CEO, but the stakes are just that much higher now that we're you know close to $30 billion in assets with 30 plus million in, in EBITDA. I think we ended last year with 41. So I spend my day as a cheerleader, making sure my people have the tools they need to succeed to execute our strategy and making sure we're on track for our strategy. So it's a lot of meetings. It's a lot of thinking. And and it's a lot of capital allocation work for me.
0: It's it's an important distinction. And and it's one which very few firms actually work really that way. They might suggest it, but I think when you peel back the onion, it doesn't really work like that. It's, I think, quite relevant to your success. It's relevant to how Moffitt brainstormed and ran the firm, and then very relevant to the fact that you basically took the same mantle. You've You've done it in your own way, but the job specs and the focus is the same.
1: That's right. Yep, very much so.
0: As you and I both know, there is a pulse and a culture to every firm, and they can be very different. And that often goes a long way to, helping orchestrate uh, long-term outcomes is kind of both how people feel, the tenure, uh, the glue that binds, and people who work at Silvercrest would say, this firm is blank. Give me a sense for some of the kind of cultural descriptive thoughts and or words you would apply
1: right so and some of this comes out of our investment philosophy as a as a as a beginning in our roots you know with that value equity team you mentioned under roger vogel um and 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 sort of a, an understanding that the trust our clients have put into us not to lose the money is so profound that we are stewards of generations of capital that can't it was incredibly hard to make and can't be repeated or extremely difficult uh, to repeat. So there's a certain conservatism to what we do and a humility about what we're doing. This is a very collegial workplace. It's highly entrepreneurial. Folks have a passion for the investment business. It's quite uh, consensual when it comes to decision-making. It's very flat. There's maybe one level between me and the, the receptionist. Uh, folks are really left to do what they think is best to do their jobs um, effectively. Uh, and it's a fun place to work. And, uh, you know, one of the hardest things is to retain great people in a business that really is composed only of the intellectual capital of its people. And we have extremely, extremely low turnover. The last partner I lost in this firm was was 12 years ago. If you can believe it. Yeah. And uh, so we're really, really proud of that stability. And I think those are a few things that that, that get a, a, at the heart of who we are. Uh, people love helping each other and go above and beyond to do so so that we all succeed. And uh, that gets in part to the culture I inherited when I came here that was purposely set up and somewhat modeled on DLJ, but also, I hope, uh, my own leadership style and emphasis here, which we could get into if you'd like to.
0: It's heartening to hear that because that's how I felt the firm actually was on the inside and was known for that 15 or 20 years ago. And it's what attracted a number of, of high quality folks to the firm. But let's pivot, Rick, from something you just said that I think is, uh, might be an interesting, ironic uh, compliment, which would be there's a certain conservatism in being mm-hmm. a great steward And protecting what you have. And yet I know that you also think about innovation and you think about where the puck is going in terms of your near-term aspirations. Help guide us from how you think about just kind of keeping everything in very good shape and executing what you have to thinking about your near-term and long-term aspirations, what innovation or what thought processes or, or things you need to pay attention to to ensure that you're still as relevant and competitive five, 10 plus years from now.
1: Right. So, you know, being conservative with people's capital uh, and not losing the money, of course, does not mean you're stodgy, boring, unable to, to innovate. It's, it, as I said before, it's really more about a certain kind of humility of what you're trying to achieve for your clients and, and, and understanding what they're really here for. Uh, but there are any number of ways that you can innovate on behalf. Of clients and think about the future. Number one, aspirationally, and I think we're well on our way, I want to be one of the very, very few top tier investment advisory firms, families, and select institutions in the country, bar none. When someone thinks about wealth management, I want Silvercrest to be on the absolute short list as a brand. And if we're not there, we're, we're at least really, really close, given, given mm-hmm. what we've accomplished over the, the past mm-hmm. 20 years. To do that, you constantly have to be able to offer uh, new ways of thinking about what you're doing and how you do it. I think some of the opportunities and directions that we're thinking about, a lot of it revolves around uh, technology, which obviously is affecting all aspects of every business and society and how you use that to improve not just investment returns for clients and your interactions with them, but also improves your own uh, margins as a business and efficiency and working on, on behalf of clients. I view what is happening in technology, which some people think is a threat to a firm like ours, which is very heavily based on relationships. Some people view, for example, the entrance of the Googles of the world potentially into this business or robo-investing, et cetera, as a potential threat. I think it's an enormous opportunity. Technology at the cutting edge like that ultimately works its way throughout society and into an industry like ours. Mm. And we've already seen that happen over the past several years. For example, Silvercrest has been absolutely totally in the cloud, not a CPU on site for six years. Um, Just as one example, we have our own data warehouse that drives all of our reporting um, that's in the cloud and can be changed on the fly now thanks to new database techniques. But I think one of the most valuable things technology is going to do as it spreads and those innovations occur is that it's going to make your ability to interact on a relationship level much more profound, if you use it correctly. It makes people even more important. Technology cannot and will not replace that. And so I'm looking at AI tools, machine learning tools that effectively inform us how we can be more effective on behalf of our clients. And we've made some progress in that area that I'm really excited about. Um, It helps anticipate what our clients need or may want in a way that right now uh, is intuitive for a good portfolio manager. But there are actually ways you can you can build on that. I I hope that doesn't sound too vague, but that's something we're innovating and looking looking into.
0: No, no, I'm actually glad that you underscored your appreciation for technology and how you think of it. Because as you well know, Rick, when we talk about aspirations and where people wanna take their firms, the very first word that comes out of most people's mouths is growth. How are we gonna grow? And if we're not growing to some great extent, Or, or any extent, we're dying in some respect.
1: In fact, in this business, you're absolutely dying because there's a leak in the bucket, right? People die. They get divorced. They, 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 right? They have taxes and they buy yachts and airplanes. So,
0: (laughs) you, 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 you got to deal with a spend rate every year, all the time. Uh, That's right. I completely appreciate that. But on the growth side, I'm going to pivot now to kind of organic versus inorganic. You have done some deals. Notably, which you mentioned earlier, the uh, high quality growth shop in Milwaukee, mm-hmm. and that added to your investment quiver. But when you think about deal making, and whether or not it's a team of people like the original group that came over from Morgan Stanley, or whether it's a whole firm like the business that came in from J.C. Edwards, how do you think about inorganic growth? And how does that kind of drive thoughts either around capital allocation or priority?
1: Yeah. And uh, thank you for mentioning the two groups that you helped uh, bring over to Silvercrest as a when you were an owner, (laughs) we appreciate it. Uh, We've done nine acquisitions over 20 years. So you can absolutely see that we're not uh, a serial uh, M&A shop. And what we do is quite deliberate. Um, The majority of those acquisitions were to enhance the wealth management capabilities, Uh, One acquisition really built the investment policy team we have here and is now the team behind our OCIO initiative to serve those institutions and to do manager selection, alternatives, risk management. Um, That's been been a great success. And then, of course, you mentioned the Cortina acquisition, which brought us uh, growth equity uh, capability, which was was, uh, really needed here to complete kind of the equity uh, offerings that we have at the firm. The firm has acquired only $7 billion of its uh, nearly $30 billion. So mm-hmm. this has been and will continue to be a significant organic growth strategy. The way I look at M&A, especially a wealth management, but it's been true of everything we've done, is that it must be something that is complementary to what we're doing and adds something of value to the firm beyond assets or clients. Which is, I think, why a lot of people do it. I, you know, it, it makes you larger, and if we get larger, yeah. you know, we'll be more of a player. My view is that M and needs to complement, deliver more than one thing to the firm, whether that's a capability, important intellectual capital, um, relationships that overlap with the existing ones at the firm, a new geography, and importantly, that you feel you can then grow organically. You must have a growth vision after an acquisition beyond we got bigger. And so that's one of the the big hurdles when I allocate capital is if I'm buying at X rate, multiple, whatever it may be, how am I going to grow it organically, not just the market pushing me in in a tailwind? And that's frankly been a challenge uh, of late. I have not acquired a wealth management firm since 2015. You can believe it.
0: I completely believe it because in some respects, we share a similar view which is we're not going to do something just for deal-making or to increase the size of the portfolio. It's got to be right. something that we feel is likely to be a sustainable success and is at least not completely unreasonably priced.
1: Exactly. And, you know, markets go up and down. The m M&A market can go up and down. It's obviously been on fire for a sustained period of time with the exceptionally low interest rates and combined with a bull market uh, that has effectively been uh, sustained for over a decade, right? Uh, go, uh, 13 years until mm-hmm. until this this these first two quarters. That's a very long time. But at the end of the day, you must have under that an organic growth strategy. That is what the firm is and is in the business it should be in. Financial engineering and MA can serve a purpose to build that, but uh, that's just part of a business, just as part of allocation, you must have an organic growth strategy and vision for the firm.
0: I, I agree, Rick, and I think it's just important to have a sound and sustainable future. Because as you know, um, the house of M&A often uh, becomes undone or unwound. And you know, the cutting room floor is littered with many deals that were done with the greatest of intentions and for multiple reasons. Um, came apart in the years that followed, and I think at Silvercrest, pretty much all that you've acquired has stuck. There may be a person here or there that has moved yep. on, but at least the rationale for those deals and those people has been long term, and you know you've grown these businesses over long periods of time with few false starts, if any.
1: Yeah, I, I'm I'm proud to say that uh, out of those nine acquisitions, eight were were highly successful and grew.
0: So let's finish, Rick, with Silvercrest as a publicly traded entity. Maybe you could just share your thoughts on being a public company and one of very few publicly traded commercial wealth and investment management businesses.
1: Thanks, Chaz. And you know, as you mentioned um, earlier, it, it was an intention of our founders to take this company public, which we achieved nine years ago. Uh, and where we're happy to do. a um, couple of key things. Um, going public at this company, despite our small size and how unusual it is, as you mentioned, allowed this firm to maintain its independence and gave an orderly exit to our capital providers. Um, uh, in that case, it was Vulcan Inc, Paul Allen's investment yeah. vehicle. They bought their their shares from from your company. If we had, pivoted to private equity or another private owner, it's unlikely this company would still exist. There was 70% of the equity basically in play when we went public nine years ago. And sadly, uh, both of our co-founders have passed away. And we were right that we had a lot of growth ahead of us. The company's more than doubled since then. And it was really about allowing the existing partners to execute a longer-term strategy on behalf of our clients successfully. We thought it was too soon. The other thing is that it gate brought great transparency and therefore was an affirmation of the quality of this firm as we built the institutional business. I don't think we have the extent of our institutional business which is now 30% of our discretionary assets unless we had gone public, honestly. It really took off around that time. Um, and I don't think it's a, a coincidence. Uh, and finally, it was a massive affirmation, um, the ability to transition from one uh, leader who was a visionary for the firm to another who hadn't sat in the CEO role before. I went through 20 job interviews a day when we, when <laughs> we went public effectively. There's one other thing that it's done and still does for us now that we're a public company. Now, obviously, the transparency is there. Some of our independence is there. The, the partners here still own over 30% of the company. but. It freed all of the cash flow of this business, all of it, because we no longer had to reserve anything for buying in units or, or shares. We can spend it on the business and on, uh, on growth or uh, return it to, to our shareholders. We've, um, we've increased the dividend on a 7% compounded annual growth rate. Which is, which is pretty, pretty strong. And um, it's a reflection of growing our uh, earnings per share at a compound annual growth rate of 21%, which is, which is uh, also uh, quite strong. So we've continued to pay a high dividend uh, that's increasing uh, to our shareholders to be very patient to hold a, a uh, very small a company with a long-term vision.
0: I think as I look back, Rick, over the 22 years, and remarkably, even the 15 years since we were bought out by Vulcan, as you pointed out, I think it's important to uh, note that Silvercrest has been a very steady success, that this has not been a success born of significant asset inflow or huge deal. I think it's something that you have grown steadily, organically, and uh, in in an industry that's had Plenty of volatility, not just in the markets, but also in terms of their staff, their business models, et cetera. I think it's a hallmark of the firm and one that should well, be appreciated.
1: Well, well, thanks for that. I mean, uh, if you're trying to build a brand and a company that is going to signify a great stability and, and kind of enduring uh, ability to, to, to serve families, to be able to say that with a straight face, you really can't be taking business risks that could undermine that. You need to take risk at, to grow the company, but you have to be very deliberate and careful about how you, you do that. And that's what we've been so good at doing. If If I can pat this firm on its back, starting from the original vision was we're going to build an enduring firm that can serve a family, not just for a generation, but generations. And if you keep that in your focus fundamentally on what your clients are buying, that can direct the business in a very sustainable, growth-oriented way um, that serves, you know, my partners, shareholders, and clients alike. So, you know, I'm pretty proud of that.
0: You should be. And I hope when we look back uh, 22 years from now, you know, it will have been another 22-year period that is marked by the same consistency and success that you have uh, driven. So thank you, Rick. Really appreciate you joining the podcast and uh, taking me down memory lane to a certain extent, (laughs) but uh, a very favorable one. And thank you. And thanks for being part of our story.